Hey, this is Adam Hawkins. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we are excited to share that we're doing a special live episode. For our last episode of this season, we'll record a live and in-person episode on December 8th, answering listener-submitted questions. This means two things. One, we need your questions, so please send them in. And two, we'd love to see you in person. In order to submit a question and to find out more information, check out the show notes. Hope to meet many of you on December 8th. Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast exploring the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Elizabeth Woodson, and I'm here with Tamarcus Braglin, and today we are talking to Rachel Ferguson, professor at Concordia University, Chicago, assistant dean of the College of Business and director of the Free Enterprise Center. Rachel, thank you for being here with us. You're very welcome. I'm happy to be here. Uh, For those of our listeners who uh, may not be familiar with your work and what you do, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself and specifically uh, the work you do at Love the Lou? Oh, sure. Okay, so I direct the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia Chicago, which is something I'm developing. And I'm actually, um, my background is in philosophy, but I've always done the philosophy of economics and politics. And so I've thought a lot about our economic system and how to include everyone um, in it in a way that can um, lead to human flourishing. And so um, at the center, I'm actually focusing on something that I call neighborhood stabilization. And that phrase, I'm just borrowing from my friend Lucas, who's the founder of Love the Lou. Um, so L-O-U, the Lou, is St. Louis, for those of you who don't know. Um, and I'm a St. Louisan born and bred. I love my hometown. And we St. Louisans have some wonderful, wonderful things in our city. Um, great real estate prices, very good for startups. Come and join us. Um, but we also have some huge struggles, as I'm sure you know. And we have an inner city that is um, highly destabilized, almost empty. A lot of people have left. And of course, emptiness brings in danger and, um, and, and destabilization. So at Love the Lou, the idea is that you want to do philanthropy in kind of a completely different way from how we usually think of it. So I think a lot of people think of philanthropy as food drives, you know, and, or, 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 you know, clothing drives or um, food pantries or something like that. And it tends to be well-meaning, but it's something that just kind of gets people through till next week. Mm -hmm. Right. So it's not transformative and because it's not transformative, it actually ends up making people dependent on, on you Um, because then it's just, they're, they're just kind of in survival mode. Right. And they're never, yeah. never having time to break out and, and thrive. And so you have to think um, a lot more deeply if we're going to do things in a different way. And so you see that in books like Toxic Charity by Bob Lupton or When Helping Hurts by Brian Ficker. Um, some of the great heroes of the movement are John Perkins, yeah. right? Christian Community Development Association, yep. Bob Woodson of the Woodson Center. I mean, these are guys who are down, you know, in the nitty gritty doing the work. And, um, And so what does that work involve? Well, if we're going to do it a better way than that sort of knee-jerk way that leads to dependency, 
we have to be more holistic. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about the patterns going on in people's lives and realize, hey, wait a second, we have a group of people who are very economically isolated, oftentimes in the inner city. And so they are what I, they have what I call network poverty. And so, um, you know, they're cut off from a lot of the things that you and I take for granted. It's like, oh, I want to apply to college. I'll call my uncle. He did that, you know, or whatever. Right. And you just, you know, you just sort of ask, hey, I want to get a job. What, what job are you doing, Joey? I'll come and work with you, you know. And so you're, you're working through all of these networks. But if you don't have those networks, you don't realize how much, you know, maybe a lot of us don't realize how much we depend on them. Right. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is if you're in a fairly isolated situation, the networks need to be brought to you because we have so many times where we're asking people to come out of their neighborhood and do our program. And our program addresses like one thing, you know, like, let me teach you how to like do your finances or something like that. But it's a whole life project. And so what Lucas did is he moved on to Enright Boulevard. Um, He moved in and he focused just on that block. Or a couple of blocks there, um, took a long time just to gain trust, you know, and get to know people and be be someone who they knew wasn't going to leave the first time something bad happened. And um, and he didn't. He stayed. He stayed through some very dangerous stuff, and he stayed and, and showed his commitment. And uh, then they started building community gardens. Uh, the kids and and other adults are actually paid um, to work in the gardens, and so you can work your way up in terms of job skills, running a garden, starting a farmer's market, working in the wood shop working small machines, et cetera. And now you've got a situation where a kid is looking at two options. I can end up like my cousin who's either in prison or maybe has even been killed. We have kids in the group that have seen that with their own eyes. And, or I can do Lucas's program, which mm, kids at school think is cheesy, but guess what? Now I have a job or I'm going to college and I'm not, I'm not ending up where my cousin ended up. Mm -hmm. And so it's actually it's actually more compelling to the students than you might imagine. Yeah. You know, um, they're willing to put up with a decent amount of flack. For and it's where it. they live. It's right on the neighborhood. So you're walking down the street on Sunday mor- on Saturday morning and everybody's out there working the garden hmm. and selling zucchinis, you know? <laughs> and so that. it's pretty great because you can go, hey, can I do this? And they're like, yeah, come on. You know, and so it becomes very real because it's right there. I love that. And then the other part of it is that, and this is so important, it's so easy for those of us who are middle and upper income to look at lower income people like you have problems and I know what you need. So I'm going to come along and drop it on your head, mm-hmm. you know, and to feel superior. But the truth is nobody's going to solve the problem in the neighborhood except the neighbors themselves, mm-hmm. right? They're the ones who know what needs to happen in the neighborhood. I don't know. And so I'm an outsider, right? And so one of the ideas of neighborhood stabilization is that we subordinate our own agenda and the agenda of our organization. Mm-hmm to the agenda of the neighbors mm-hmm. and we listen and empower them. What do you want to do in the neighborhood? How can I empower you and network you and resource you so you can do your vision yeah. for the neighborhood? And that treats people not like mere recipients, right? But it treats them with dignity. It treats them as people who have something to offer, something to exchange. Yes. And that's so important. So there's a lot to it. Um, I'm about to come out with an article in discourse going specifically over some of the main elements of neighborhood stabilization, but I just think it's, it's revolutionary. It takes more love and more commitment, but it actually works Yes. Yeah. as yeah. opposed to a lot of the stuff we do where we're going, well, we're doing something right, but it's not working. Yeah. You know, so I think we need to stop doing that other stuff and start thinking about these more holistic approaches. Uh, 
I love that. I love that so much. I remember when you when we met this summer and you were just sharing about that that vision and I thought that was just so uh compelling on so many different ways. And then uh coming to your book, I just I f- hear that heartbeat um just time and time again throughout uh the text. And so kind of want to take some time and just introduce people to that as well. Um, but maybe before we we get too deep into it, uh, if you could give us, you know, you were in the elevator and somebody asked you, you know, hey, what's what's that book you wrote about? Uh, what would how would you describe um, uh, the heartbeat um, of your book, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace? The elevator pitch. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that I want to help um, us break out of this sort of stultifying tribalism and polarization mm-hmm. around some of our hottest topics. I think number the first one of which is race. And because I'm a classical liberal, um, which I can take time to explain <laughs> what that is, uh, because I'm a classical liberal, I've always been outside of the mm. of the polarized. You know, I've, I've never been left or right, right? It's always been a weird mix. I define classical liberalism as simply as I can in the book as really being about three um, institutions and two values. So the institutions are private property. Um, and that includes your property in your own body and in your own labor, right? Um, freedom of contract. So you can make it deals with whoever you want to, unlike Jim Crow, right? Where you weren't allowed to. Right. And then the equal protection of the rule of law, meaning I need to be protected in my property and my freedom of contract by courts that are not biased and so forth, right? That are reliable and trustworthy. And when the police or the government defends those rights, they need to do it for everyone. Um, and that did not occur in Black history. You had many cases where police participated in, in uh, oppression. Um, and so those three are the values and then, or the, the institutions. And then the values are um, really the power of the market, what the market can do uh, when people are, are free and entrepreneurship is encouraged, mm-hmm. and the power of civil society. Okay. Because if you're going to have a fairly minimal government that really just does these three things, and has an army, you know, like it's just very minimal, then so much of what we get done in our lives will be through the market and through civil society, because we're, we're only relying on the state for that basic legal infrastructure, yeah. Yeah. right, within which we can operate. So that's the idea of classical liberalism. Um, and that's what, that's the political philosophy that I feel gives us a way to come at Black American history that does justice to the past without giving up on the American project, because the American project is to some extent a classical liberal project. And so I wanted to bring, the classical liberal tradition has a lot of rich commentary on race and discrimination. I wanted to bring it all together into one place and say, look, there's a third way, right? Um, There's a way we can break out of this conversation and start talking about a future for white and black Americans together that's very hopeful, but doesn't gloss over the past. Right. Takes the past really seriously. And I think we can do that. We're smart enough and we're nuanced enough to do that. Exactly. But everybody's treating Americans like we're too stupid (laughs) to not be on some weird extreme, you Mm -hmm. know. And so that's that's the general concept of the book. Yes. And I I, I think you do that wonderfully. Uh, Something that is if you pick it up, that's inevitably clear from the onset is it's you lean heavily into um, your economics background as you work work through the book, mm-hmm. it, it leans on a lot of 
um, those principles. And I think sometimes maybe if we're for those of us who aren't as, you know, in that field, we can hear economics and we just think like bottom line numbers, profit. Mm-hmm. Um, graphs. But yeah, graphs. And <laughs> your I mean, even just in what you described with um, Love the Lou, like it is so deeply connected with uh, this desire to see uh, humans flourish. Um, could you could you just maybe talk a little bit uh, towards that for those of us who maybe don't aren't as clearly see that connection? Like, how do you see economics being so um, integral to this idea of human flourishing and how it it, it helps us um, yeah. get there and see that? Well, one thing that helps is that I'm a philosopher, so that I'm actually trained in philosophy. That's my PhD, and economics didn't used to be like a subset of math. It used to be a subset of philosophy, of moral philosophy, Hmm. because the whole idea, like Adam Smith, right? You go back to like the Scottish Enlightenment, the 18th century. These guys are thinking about moral philosophy and they're thinking, how do humans relate to one another? Hmm. Okay. And so we can relate in a coercive way, right? You can rule me or I can be ruled by you. That's one way to relate. But another way to relate is freely where we exchange, And Smith thinks we have a natural desire to exchange, um, that human beings just do this, right? We say, you know, if we work together, like I can help you with your field. And then if you help me with my field next week, it's actually much more efficient. You know, like we, we think that we want to make a deal, right? You know? And so what he's saying is this is actually telling us a lot about human nature and the human person, the way that societies come together. I mean, you can go all the way back to Plato and Plato says, there's a reason that human beings aren't just individuals roaming around by themselves. You know, first Mm. of all, we would die. (laughs) Right. Uh, But second, like we need each other, right. We need each other. And if somebody's good at farming and I'm good at making shoes and you're good at roofing. Right. And then we can exchange, we can have a much, much better life. And that's all actually cooperation. So a lot of times when we talk about the economy, we talk about competition, but competition is more like a byproduct Mm. uh, that just comes about naturally when, several people are trying to provide the same good. Right. Mm -hmm. But what most of what we do in the economy is actually cooperation. It's me hiring you. It's me hiring you to be my distributor. It's me trying to get you to come in and buy my stuff. Right. It's us working together to come up with a new product. And then, and then it just sort of results right in this competitive system that allows like quality to go up and prices to go down. And so people get richer. And, and one of the points that I really like to make because people are not aware of it. And the reason they're not aware of it is because the news, um, the news is motivated by our reactions of like fear and danger. So you're going to click on things that are like really terrible. Right. And that's just how the news is. Right. Mm -hmm. It leads, it leads, that kind of thing. Um, But so for that reason, a lot of people aren't aware of the fact that poverty all around the world is plummeting. Um, I mean, in ways that are like unbelievable, historically speaking, mm-hmm. you know, abject poverty, which is like $3 a day, you know, living on $3 yeah. a day, we're down to 8%, 8%. Wow. It's like unbelievable. 200 years ago, it was 99%. You know, I mean, it's like, it, it's a complete and utter shift in our reality. Um, and there are poor people all over the world who can buy antibiotics for their kids and send their kids to school instead of work today. Mm-hmm because of the rise of global markets. But if you ask somebody on the street, is poverty getting better or getting worse globally? They'll say, well, it's getting worse, right? Because if you look on the news, 
you know, if something bad happens and there's a hurricane, you think, oh no, you know? Yeah. And you're like, well, no, the general trend is really, really good actually. And, and even in like sub-Saharan Africa, you've got like infant mortality going down and maternal mortality going down and stuff like that. And so when you really look at human flourishing in terms of just having what you need in order to pursue your calling in life, hmm. you have a lot more people being able to do that and, and having choices open up to them just because of the rise of global markets and the rise in their incomes hmm. all over the world. And so it's it's in economics and the freedom for, to be creative and to exchange and to try things and succeed or fail is all so important to sort of this moral vision of a world in which people can really pursue their vocation, right? Yes. And and give to the world what God has given them to give. Yes, I love that. Um, you know, we, we often talk about whenever uh, human dignity and Imago Dei conversations come up, right? We, we look back to Genesis and we think of when God made Adam and Eve and he, um, he makes them in his image and he commissions them to be uh, fruitful and to multiply and to go out and to take this thing that he's given them and uh, just as you articulated, right, cooperating with one another to um, grow and to continue to be uh, co-laborers uh, with him. Um, and I remember uh, hearing in a lecture before, like a gentleman saying, like, in order for in order for us to be able to do that, in order for me to be able to um, steward something, in order for me to be able to be generous uh, with something, in order for me to be able to make with something, there has to like I have to I have to have something. I have to be able to right. have property. I have to be able to uh, express yeah. my creativity. Um, with that, something you touch on in the book, which I think especially today, as um, I don't know, just conversations of like trying to think through American history have you know come up, and there's been different views of how do we how do we look back and you know was it all good? Was it all bad? Um, how do we how do we process that? And in the effort to do that, um, there's been narratives that that talked about you know the the heritage of slavery um, in the light of it being morally bad, but actually being uh, this like um, financially like lucrative and like positive mm -hmm. thing, right? And mm -hmm. you you talk about the danger of that kind of ideology in your book. Could you just speak a little bit into what's uh, what's missing? in that kind of analysis and why is it important for us to note um, the, 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 the damage that it did not only uh, morally uh, into to human lives, but also it wasn't good. Um, it wasn't good business either. Right. Right. Yeah. And this goes back to Adam Smith too, again, and, and other, other classical liberal economists like John Stuart Mill um, pointing out that just think through, think it through logically, right? If, I have a part of the population that can't learn, can't move anywhere, isn't allowed to exchange things, isn't allowed to invent things, right? Then I'm going to lose out. Like whatever that population had to offer beyond just basic manual labor, I'm going to lose out on whatever that was. And that's the point. It, it, initially in the 18th century, all of these guys are saying, Slavery makes no sense as an economic system because you're, you're not allowing people to bring their own creativity uh, to the fore or to go to where their labor is most needed or whatever allows the economy to grow, right? And so what you're doing is you're just tamping down everything that they have to offer in mm -hmm. such a way that they lose out, obviously, but everything 
everybody loses out on what they could have exchanged with them, right? Or what they could have learned from them um, and, and receiving their gifts fully. And so um, they're thinking about it logically. The new historians of capitalism have come along and said, no, you know, this is this was a great way to build wealth, right? And, and it's, it's weird because they're against slavery, but their story is that, um, it, you know, is that the Southern planters uh, built up Ameri- the American economy on, on slavery. Um, well, a little bit, right? I mean, the, I mean, the cotton, um, the, the, the cotton part of the economy was like five to 6% of the American economy. But the new historians of capitalism way overestimate it. They think it's like 50% of the American economy. I mean, they literally make like a math mistake. Um, and, and they've gotten called on the carpet for it too, even by the guys who generated the original data. They're like, you're counting this wrong. It's not true. So what's the point? The point is, yes, of course, we want to give Black Americans credit for the work that they did, right, that that built the, the cotton economy. But on the other hand, we don't want to overstate it and act like this was a great way to generate wealth is by being exploitative and by extracting things from people through coercion. That's not a good way to generate wealth, right? The best way to generate wealth is to set people free and let them be innovative. That the source of, of growing the pie, of growing the economy is innovation, not extraction. So one of the points I make when I go around and talk on college campuses, I use the metaphor of a pirate. Right. So a pirate can take money from you and enrich himself. And so, yes, the pirate has gotten rich, but he hasn't made the economy better off because he hasn't produced anything. Do you see what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. And so when we have a system that's based on extraction by violence, we've produced a little bit of cotton, but we haven't innovated. We haven't grown the economy. Right. We haven't done anything new, nothing more efficient, nothing, nothing higher quality, nothing lower price, et cetera. Okay, and so we have to be really careful when we talk about the southern economy, because, yes, it was a big economy. You know, yes, it provided cotton to the northern northern industrial mills. Okay, but you had all of the wealth concentrated in the planter families, Mm -hmm. which was a very small group of families, no middle class, very poor whites and even poorer enslaved black people. You went up north. Frederick Douglass talked about you went up north and he was like, whoa. The poor white people in the North are doing way better than the poor white people in the South, right? They actually have a growing income and they were doing pretty good and had extra money and things like that. And he was like shocked by it because he thought of poor whites as being not much better off than, than poor blacks, you know, because that's what he saw in the South. So there's no middle class. And then the South ends up being way behind economically. Mm-hmm. So why? Because they're still passing buckets from person to person instead of using steam steam engines and stuff like that. Why? Because they've got free labor. They've got, they're, they're not, there's nothing forcing them. There's no bottom line forcing them to be innovative and to do things in more efficient ways. Mm-hmm. And so you see immediately after emancipation, they're like, oh crap, we have to industrialize, yeah. you know? And so they start looking around and they're like way behind way, way behind. And you, and even today you see, and some of that's due to the civil war, but some of it's just due to how far behind they were anyway. Um, you see the South really struggled until recently when the, um, the big cities like Atlanta and Dallas and Houston are really, really picking up steam finally after a century, you know? Yeah. It makes me, you know, as we think, it makes me think about kind of how we frame human flourishing in this, uh, perception we have, we don't realize that when one of us suffers, all of us suffers. Like of what right. we're losing out on, 
um, by participating in systems that exploit people, or I, I like the, the the comparison you make between innovation and extraction. That yes, yeah. money is coming from extraction, but so much more benefit to our society could be given if we free people up to innovate. We free them up for the gifts they have. We free them up to really do what we're called to do in this Genesis one narrative of bless the world with what has been embedded in us by our God. Yeah, um, that's it. And it is it's, it's that we. We have to reframe the story, um, and I think some we can distance ourselves from. Oh, that's that, that's not affecting me. It's like actually it is, and we yeah. because it's affecting us. We need to be engaged in helping turn um, the tides towards a place where I think to use your words, innovation is possible for everyone. Kind of this neighborhood stabilization. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Can I say something really politically incorrect? <laughs> is that allowed? <laughs> No, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be nuanced. <laughs> one of the points that I make, and I get into this in my section yeah. on reparations at the end of the book. One of the points that I make is we often talk about exploitative systems and the people who benefit. Yeah. And so we know that if black people were exploited, the assumption is that white people benefited. Yeah. And I think, um, okay, certain white people enrich themselves. Yeah. But in general, we don't benefit when we exploit a no. whole, you know, or keep down economically a whole section, subsection of the, of the economy, right. Or of the population. Oh, yeah. And so we have to, I'm a little nitpicky with that language. Mm. Right. So when I say, Oh, well, we're, you're benefiting from the system. I think, are we? Who's benefiting? We're, we're none of us are benefiting. We can say the same thing if we want to critique the drug war or other things that yeah. are oppressive. Um, who's benefiting? Yeah. Almost no one, right? And certainly if we take the spiritual, the soul into account, no one. So you see that in the, a lot of the rhetoric of the civil rights movement is people talked about the fact, like, like in the letter from Birmingham jail, MLK says, it's our souls are twisted with hatred and their souls are twisted too by racism, right? With the way that power can corrupt people. And so nobody's better off it's especially if we think in terms of like an objective concept of being well off spiritually. Yeah. Nobody's better off as a result of yeah. the system. We've all not benefited. We've all lost out. Yeah. And, and I think that that's a part of the narrative that we're given is that um, you are better off for this when you realize that you're not the one that's better off. And that even if someone's benefiting, that group is so small and so concentrated that the majority right. of us, we're all living in the the wake of uh, a society that doesn't provide opportunity for everyone. And I think as I, as I think about just uh, current news cycles, it's the midterm elections, and you just we're just pushed with so much stuff. It is what is truth and what is really the situation that we're in as humans in this world and versus what we're told the situation is. Um, and I think people yeah. acknowledging we're not off, we're not as well off, or you're not as well off as they're telling you you are. Yeah, yeah, that's important. Something, Agreed. something I wanted to to ask too, uh, and this kind of tie, tying that idea right that there's this part of it that we can have this problem when we think that we're all benefiting from uh, things that are exploitative, and then thinking about okay, how do we how do we solve that? So even if we bring that to um uh today a little bit right as we're still trying to think to what does it look like for us to 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 walk through these issues a lot of times people uh want to default to um the right the the government right what can the government do and mm-hmm. we particularly 
want to look and see like, man, well, what has what has God called the church um, to do? And what are the opportunities uh, for us to step in and um, in neighborhoods? Right. And do that kind of do that kind of work. Um, and you you have a chapter where you talk about how uh, the church uh, functioned, uh, mm-hmm. specifically the black church uh, functioned in that way. Um, so much so in creating really the foundation for the civil rights movement to be able to to happen. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, what uh, what is the 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 power that lies um, in the church to be mm-hmm. able to do that? And then how can you know we today better leverage uh, the influence that the the church has to uh, provide that kind of um, that kind of change in our local communities? Yeah, so, you know, I kind of start out with this critique that says the thing about central planning, like whenever we try to go through the state or the government as a solution, that's a central plan, right? Right. It's like we want to solve a problem with one big button, you know, that we pushed. And the problem with central planning, even if you have don't even want to talk about like any kind of moral argument against it, you can go straight to like the practical argument which is that central planners just don't have the information. They just don't have the information. And so they, they have kind of a, you, you have to have sort of a one size fits all solution mm-hmm. and it never does. Right. And so you end up getting all these unintended consequences and, and fallout from, from social engineering kind of policies. And I have chap I have three chapters right on social engineering policies that were put in place that, that created our inner cities in many ways. And so it's really, really bad. So I've got the critique to set us up. And then and then what I want to say is, okay, so if you're going to have a, a, a solution to some of our hardest social problems, it's got to be hyper local, right? It's got to be on the ground, face to face, walking through life with people. That's what it really takes. And so if we go back and we look at the Black church tradition, which I did in chapter five, um, I mean, there's I could go on and on and on about that chapter. It was such a pleasure to do that research and and to write that chapter. It was wonderful to learn that history. But I think one of the most stunning things about the Black church is for a very long period of time, nobody was coming in to rescue uh, Black people too much. I mean, there was a little bit of help from the North on schools and some things, but mostly it was like, it was going to be up to them, you know? And so um, what you saw was people who had an institution, I call it a civil society institution, Mm -hmm. um, meaning it's not the market, right? It's not buying and selling and it's not the state, right? It's not coercion. It's voluntary cooperation, but it's about something other than buying and selling. So that's civil society. And and what I say is that, uh, you know, you had such a, a deep kind of meaning and purpose in that institution and the sense in which Black people had genuine leadership there because they were sort of left alone. And so the self-respect and the leadership and the self-esteem that came out of that movement pushed forward like the literacy efforts, the fraternal societies, which was a kind of early social insurance, the, the, the National Negro Business League. You know, I mean, everything started in the church. And James Baldwin talks about this. Mm-hmm. He says, the church is so complex because it's the one safe place, like it's the one safe haven. Hmm. And so it becomes like the cultural womb of black America, which so, so we're, you know, maybe for me as a white person, 
I go to church for church and then I do other stuff, right? And it's like, if I want to go to an art show, I go somewhere else. But for the black community, at least initially, the art show was a church too, you know? Yep. And if you wanted to politically organize, that was a church too. Mm-hmm. And if you wanted to put on a play, that was in the church basement, you know? I mean, so it was really this complex yeah. cultural entity and it just produced so much. And so when you look at the incredible leap forward in literacy from basically zero to 80% by 1930, I mean, it could be one of the biggest leaps ever in the history of the world in terms of one group learning how to read that fast. Just incredible stuff. Why? Because everybody wanted to read the Bible. That's why, you know? Mm. And so they're building schools. I mean, it was just amazing. And then when you look at the civil rights movement, you think of something like the Montgomery bus boycott. How are you going to organize everybody driving each other to work for 381 days? I mean, that is what they didn't have Google Docs back then. You know, (laughs) they didn't have Doodle to set up their schedule. You know, you had to have real on the ground, face to face networks and relationships. And people knew each other from church. And so they set up their rides for 381 days. That is an incredible amount of discipline and organization for a political movement. It's really, really impressive. And so I think what people don't realize is sometimes like with, let's say, Black History Month, we often focus so much on the political achievement, you know, of like the 64 Anti-Discrimination Act, which is which is good. Um, And we should celebrate that. But what we forget is this long history of civil rights that goes all the way back to even building the businesses that paid for the lawyers for the NAACP. You know what I mean? Madam C.J. Walker was funding the NAACP with her hair care business, you know? And so you've got to have all of that interweaving of networks and business and uh, and fraternal association and church and, and school, right? All coming together to fuel this really powerful movement. And, and so it didn't all just happen in, in the late 50s. You know, it was something that had been building and building and building ever since emancipation. Yeah. That's man. I remember, I remember reading that that chapter, and I had to like pause. It was just like, I think probably the excitement you felt writing it, like I was feeling reading it. Um, but it it does it goes back to where you started of just like that, the importance of a neighbor in the networks. And I heard you I heard you lecture um, on this before, and the way you talked about the the weakness that the state have versus something localized like a church is. Um, the state, you said all state action lacks a face and to do Mm -hmm. this kind of work, it requires day in and day out face-to-face interaction. Um, and I think that kind of, um, that kind of work gets so downplayed today. Uh, we want to do the, like you said, we want to press the, the one big button. We want to make the real big thing real fast. And it's like so much of the, like the best work that has been done has been slow, on the ground, face-to-face human interaction with our neighbors. um, And as you described in the church, right? Um, And so um, that, that was just so encouraging. And I think along those lines, um, you know, think, thinking about that, what, what do you see is a way for us to continue that, that kind of work today? Cause I think oftentimes when that conversation comes up, in a church and we think about how to deal with our issues today. So quickly we, you know, critical race theory becomes a a hiccup and it it gets quickly lumped into all sorts of conversations that we're not, you know, 
really trying to I don't know, have or uh, raise mm-hmm. up. Um, how how can we distinguish that kind of um, community building and flourishing and trying to you know set people up for success and all that you've described versus what I guess whatever the CRT socialism <laughs> all the all the isms that no one likes kind of thing. You know, I was just on a panel a couple of weeks ago called "Are Americans as Divided as We Seem." Mm -hmm. Uh, for the State Policy Network. And it was interesting because our answer was sort of no. Um, In this sense, I think we are pretty divided. Our divisions are a real issue. But I think sometimes the most extreme positions can sound really loud, Mm -hmm. you know, like on social media or... And so you're thinking... Oh my gosh, you know, if someone's left-leaning, they hate capitalism, you know, or they or they don't believe in business or something like that. But the truth is that there may be a few academics somewhere who like think that like all wage labor is slavery or something like that, right? Like some really extreme view. But most of our neighbors, most of the people in our churches, most of the people where you know we're gonna be working with in the neighborhood are like, hey, I want to start a business, right? You know, they or, or I want to support somebody who's an entrepreneur. In other words, it's so much more practical when we get away from like these big, the big weird, extreme debates. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And so what I've noticed about neighborhood stabilization work is that like there's actually a really wide range of politics, I would say, at Love Blue. You know, probably we don't really talk about it, to tell you the truth. Um, it doesn't come up much, but I can kind of guess sometimes. And it just doesn't matter because once you're on the street, you're doing the work, you just know what people need because you're there. Right. Mm, And so if I'm someone who thinks that, for instance, systemic oppression is so great that um, it's just hopeless or something like that for black people in America, the minute I come down to the block and I'm talking to these teenagers, I'm encouraging them to have grit and resilience and Mm -hmm. a sense of agency. I'm immediately going to start doing that because it's just what makes sense. Uh, You know what I mean? On the ground, right? Yes, there have been systemic oppressions that have blocked us and obstructed growth. That is all true. But I'm not going to sit here and tell a kid, America's against you. There's nothing you can do. Why would I say that to any person? That is ridiculous, right? And so what you see is a lot of those hard edges kind of get softened when you do the real work. And so, and so I kind of, on the one hand, it's like I engage in those debates because I am an academic, but on the, and I have that little epilogue in the book where I'm like, all the controversial stuff, you know, at the very end of the book. Because I'm like, I really, but the reason I did that is because I really wanted to put forward a positive project, not just a reaction to somebody else and what I think they're doing wrong, but what can we do right, you know? And so when, yeah, so the point is, is that, but, you know, 92% of the American population is not on one or the other of those really crazy, yeah. like reactionary extremes. And so I think we can, I hope, get past all the rhetoric and the debates. And, and a lot of times I think it comes through the work itself, yeah. like actually just doing the work, like just go and like mulch one of the gardens and talk to the students. Yeah. And then let's talk about it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Because mm-hmm. I bet it'll change people's perspectives. Yeah. Early in, um, and I promise this connects, um, in my uh, ministry career, I spent some time um, at uh, Lawndale Community Church. Uh, Lawndale, oh, yeah. yeah. 
uh, Christian Health Center. I used to work there. And when you talk about doing the work, that's the community I think of. It is a Christian Community Development Association. They're involved heavily. And I mean, they have really worked to transform a block section of Chicago. Um, And so in the midst of um, kind of rhetoric and and ideas about gang violence in Chicago and politics in Chicago and all the things that would make you feel like the situation is hopeless, you see people who are doing the work invested not in the entire city like they literally it's just a specific mm-hmm. section i mean they right. committed themselves to people who've just i mean they moved in decades ago and are still there um but it is that the temptation i think with those conversations is that change is not possible and that is a mm-hmm. hopeless situation uh right. and to be able even when we think about the black church and we think about people who had every obstacle against them mm. um that even as you said it a couple minutes ago, that for 300 plus days, these people without MapQuest and Google and, you know, <laughs> <Apple>. Zoom, <laughs> right? Like they were able to coordinate an entire community of people in carpooling for the betterment yeah. of them and really everyone in their city. And that yeah. is just like, even when the odds were against them, change happened. Um, And the temptation can be to be consumed by the loudest voices. And sometimes when I'm talking to people, I'm like, work is happening, y'all. There are people in communities who are making change. They're not on your Twitter feed, but they're doing good Mm -hmm. work. And you need to go find them and stop listening to some of these loud voices that are just talking but not really doing anything. Well, and that's the thing, right? It it made me think about, like, where is our hope, right? Because if... If my hope if my hope is in the government, well then of course I'll I'll look at the rhetoric and I'll look at the news and I'll look at the things and I'm like, oh, it's hopeless, we can't do it, we're divided, we're all the but it's like, but if my if my hope is ultimately in Christ and what he's accomplished mm-hmm. and what I know will not be thwarted through the work of his church, and then I look around and I see the way, like you say, not everybody doing everything everywhere, but like if every church, you know, everyone marked out their block, like, hey, this yep. is our territory. <laughs> how do yep. how do we um, love and steward and 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 take care of the place that God has called us to, and then trust that every church on every corner and every yes. block is doing the yes. same thing? Um, like that doesn't that's not the thing that's going to get lifted up. It's nope. not going to be really loud. It's not going to be on the news. But that's that is the 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 good the good work to do. Um, and yeah, I just I felt like in so in so many ways, uh, obviously, uh, just in um, because you're brilliant, like you're you're. I felt like your book encouraged me in that of look at these look at these really big issues that that has that has faced us, and look at how people um, through persistence um, and through faith in so many ways, mm-hmm. uh, cooperation have been able to. Uh, push forward and work together in spite of great opposition. And I just think that's such an encouragement for us today as we consider, you know, what's in front of us that looks impossible um, and how can we, you know, look to the person to our left and right, get down, do the work and, and, you know, see, see progress continue to be made. And so. Yeah, and I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, I, I argue in the book for certain policy changes too. Yeah. Um, you know, I talk about economic freedom. I talk about educational freedom, criminal justice reform. Oh yeah. Um, but I'm not gonna, you know, Jamel down on Enright can't wait for all that to get done before anything moves forward. Exactly. You know? And so it's not that I don't have anything to say 
um, about those policies. I definitely do. And I, and I think it may be the calling of some people to work on those policies. Um, but I'm not going to wait exactly. for that. Right. Yeah. It's a both and. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. In terms of solutions, right, you talk about this, um, this idea of transitional justice. Um, hmm. And can you define what that is for us and what it looks like practically? You know, I think about the person who's like, yes, I have this, this idea in my mind of God's called me t- to care for my slice of the pie, my block. Um, what is it? What does it look like for us to move forward in really creating opportunities for everyone? Yeah, so transitional justice um, is actually more about looking backwards. So I think like the neighborhood stabilization and then some of the policy things were about looking forward. But I do think that there is a lot of racial pain in America and it's totally legitimate. (laughs) I mean, we have such a painful history on this topic and we're living with the, my friend JT Thomas calls it a racial hangover, Mm. right? We're, We're living with the hangover of um, all of these, all of, all of these policies that you can see written into the geography of the United States. I mean, literally, the way our highways were built through the city. You know, it's like there are walls of concrete between one color and the other color. You know, and so you can feel that, and you can still, still, I think, grieve that and have a, a legitimate lament mm. over that now. And so, what we want to do is think in terms of. How does, and sometimes I think kind of like a a therapeutic sort of metaphor, you know, so like if I have abuse in my history or something like that, how do I move on? What is the healthy way to move forward? Because I feel like there's two extremes, right? On the left, it's, well, it's become so mired in the evils of our history that we give up on the American project, right? And we kind of think we should just be something else. And then on the right, it's like kind of fingers in your ear, la, la, la. You know, sometimes you get this fantastical history of the United States as though everything was always great, you know, and and like or or yeah, bad things happen. But like, let's just move on. You know, we've dealt with all that. It's over. Mm-hmm. And so it's sort of like thinking, what is the healthy way mm-hmm. to deal with the past so that we can move forward yeah. and mm-hmm. with hope? Right. And together um, Mm -hmm. as a republic, as a multi-ethnic republic. And so I I draw on uh, an article by Anthony Bradley. He's a black theologian at the King's College in New York City um, called Finally Healing the Wounds of Jim Crow. And, And I just thought this was genius because what he does is he goes and he looks at transitional justice as it's practiced internationally, where you have like these humanitarian crises that are society wide, you know, think like like um Hutus and Tutsis in Rwanda or something, right? You know, right. Or, or apartheid in South Africa. And you look at, at, at how to handle that level of injustice. Mm-hmm. Because what we really had with Jim Crow and convict leasing and all of this, you know, we really had um, an apartheid-like situation. And so, you know, there's a lot of elements of it. But what I really honed in on was institutional memory. Mm-hmm. Um, because that's something that's very doable, right? Mm-hmm. And what I'm saying is, you know, once again, hyper-local, keep it local. This is not a national project. This is a local project. How can we, you know, interview our Jim Crow survivors about what they went through? Mm. Um, You know, and not just the meanness of people being racist, but things like economic exclusion. You know, things like having your house eminent domain for the highway or for urban renewal. 
right? There are people who are with us now who experienced all this. It just wasn't that long ago. It's our grandparents and our great grandparents in some cases. Yeah. You know, and so just memorializing that appropriately. Um, and in some cases, fixing uh, real crimes that, that can be addressed. So, for instance, I, I this is a great example. In California, there was a family called the Bruces, and the Bruces had a black beach, mm-hmm. a blacks only beach, because they weren't allowed on any other part of the beach. And they owned this part of the beach, they owned this land, and they made it a blacks only beach. They were constantly harassed uh, by the white population, by the city. Finally, the city just took it. They just took it through eminent domain, turned it into, um, you know, a city beach. And once again, blacks were excluded. Well, recently, that beach has been restored to the Bruce family. Okay. And of course, now it's worth millions. (laughs) Go Bruce's. (laughs) But right, I'm somebody who is a classic liberal, really believes in private property rights. Like, I actually think they have so much to do with our human dignity. Because it gives you a space in which you can be free. And that's what the Bruce's did. And they were violated by our system. Their rights were violated. So it is appropriate for them to be restored with that beach. Hmm. That is the right thing to do because that was a real crime, right? And so in those cases where we can restore something that was criminally taken, Mm -hmm. um, we should do that. Just like we have with art that Nazis stole from Jewish families, right? And we've restored the art, okay? And so transitional justice repairs those things that are it's possible to do so, um, um, and then it, it properly memorializes. And one of the point that I make, points that I'm making about being anti-tribal is that a lot of times you'll see people on the left more interested in working on this institutional memory. But the problem with that can sometimes be that um, the goal becomes too broad. Right. So it's like we want to do social justice. And it's like, what does that mean? You know, it's like very vague sometimes. Mm -hmm. And then then it starts including other things besides um, particularly the oppression of black Americans. Mm -hmm. So you bring in all these other oppressed groups and sometimes it's not really compatible. Right. Um, And so it's sort of like mission creep. You know, it kind of loses its focus. Mm -hmm. And I think one thing that conservatives and libertarians and, and classical liberals can do is they can participate. Stop stop removing yourself from the conversation about America's institutional memory with regard to our racist history. Remain in the conversation and then be the one who anchors that conversation in reality, right? And who says, what was the specific crime? Can we do anything about it? How can we properly memorialize it, right? And so it Mm -hmm. keeps it focused and keeps it with a singleness of purpose that I think keeps it um, meaningful, really meaningful. And that's how we really heal. You know, mm-hmm. it's just like if I was dealing with someone who'd been abused, we would go, you know, we would list those things out and we would talk through them one by one, right? And maybe they would need to go and and confront someone, you know, and say, you need to make amends to me or whatever, right? I mean, there's some process, but it has to be specific. It can't just be things were bad, right? Yeah. And 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 so we condemn the past, right? It's It's too vague. And so that's that's the idea of transitional justice. And I wanted to include that in solutions. In a way, my book is an act of transitional justice, right? It's saying, hey, let's us as conservatives and classical liberals, speaking for myself, mm-hmm. let's do a better job of telling the story of property rights violations and violations of freedom of contract and of bodily integrity and of the rule of law, equal protection of the rule of law. We care about those values too. So we should be just as angry 
about mm-hmm. all the ways in which they were abrogated and we should tell the story truthfully. Mm. So powerful. I, th- I mean, I think even in our own city in Dallas, right, there's, it's easy, what I thought was so compelling with the institutional memory, it's so easy to just think, well, that was so long ago. Um, and then you meet somebody, you know, I remember having a friend, his his grandma was like, I remember when I lived in Dallas and the, my friend I went to school with, her her dad's house got bombed, right? And it's like, oh, that wasn't, that wasn't so long ago. Like I still no. remember, I still remember his name, and we remember who, right? Like it's, um, there's there's something that gives, uh, it makes this, it makes it tangible, um, and and like you say, like in the spaces where you can um, make amends and you can repair, like we have the opportunity to do so. And so, um, I'm just, I'm I'm grateful for the work. I'm grateful for, um, yeah, just the the time and the precision precision uh, that you took to. Uh, articulate those things um, in the book as well. I think it was, um, it's encouraging. And you you did show a, I think a, a way forward of how can we begin um, to practically uh, take steps in the right direction where it doesn't, doesn't just have to be emotive and it doesn't have to be hopeless, but we can, there's tangible things that we can begin to do locally as a community, again, as a church, mm-hmm. uh, be it both um, promoting promoting policy that 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 promotes human flourishing, but then also practically mm-hmm. doing the hands-on work that promotes it as well. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. It's been a Thank one, you. Yeah, a wonderful, thought-provoking conversation. Because yeah. a goal for all of us is it's human flourishing. Yeah. That we should care, that we are compelled to care about the work of restoration that God is doing in the world because he is doing a work of restoration in us. Um, we're interconnected. We have been given a community to steward. And so I like how you you encourage us to bring it down from the national matters, but the local, your block, your street, your neighborhood, mm-hmm. your community mm-hmm. um, is where you can have a huge impact in. And partly it's just showing up, acknowledging and healing from the things of the past so that we can mm-hmm. move forward to create mm-hmm. flourishing everyone, no matter where they're from, what they look like, what the opportunities have been given, haven't been given, um, that Christians would be the ones who are championing those things in the world. Yeah. Can I just end with one meditation on what you just said? Yes, Mm -hmm. ma'am. You know, I was talking to Lucas about the fact that I'm touting neighborhood stabilization in the book and talking about it all over the country. (laughs) And he said, he kind of stopped me. Mm. And he said, just remember, Rachel, um, you know, he just started a new block and he mm-hmm. said, nobody on this block, trust me, it's going to take another six years, mm-hmm. right? I'm starting all over again. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And he said, this is work for Jesus people to do. Yeah. This is work for Jesus people to do people who know that they are broken, who know that they've been forgiven yes. that somebody went way out of his way, mm-hmm. you know, for them to have the humility and the patience and the genuine love, right? Genuine love for people that you'll take it, you know, that you'll endure some of the difficulties that you'll face if you do this kind of work, because it is hard work when people have been traumatized and there's low trust, it takes a lot of work to win them over, Mm -hmm. you know? And so I just want to reiterate that because I think we can get excited about the model and forget what it really requires mm-hmm. yes, and of us. 
And we have to bring our genuine spiritual formation and discipleship to Jesus Christ as he is the master and we are the students when we come in and do this work. And it's, it's the only way it's going to work well. I mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. So uh, we're happy at Love the Lou to include non-believers who want to help out. Yeah. That's great. And we do. But it has to be driven by the heart of Christ. It has mm-hmm. to. Amen. 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 That's the word. Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. This episode was produced by Chris Thayer, Chelsea Conway, and Mandy Page. If you're a regular follower of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. You can message us on social. Check the show notes for more information on how to best connect with us, as well as find out more information about our guests and ways to support their work. See y'all next time.